Well, good morning, church. It is a, it's a real pleasure to be with you here this morning. And I got to say, um, right off the bat, this is, um, I get, well, let me put it to you this way. I get the chance to speak. And as you heard uh, Jeff say, I get the chance to train a lot of people. Um, but this is my first time right here. And this is an incredibly precious moment for me and an honor to be able to do this. And uh, so I want to thank you for allowing me to. I want to thank you for your partnership with us in Ireland. Um, Ellisville and uh, just the partnership that we've had down through the years has meant a tremendous deal to myself and my wife, Julianne, who many of you know, and you watched her grow up here. And so the fact that you've decided to come alongside us and stand with us and partner with us for the gospel in Ireland has been just a wonderful thing. And so I really want to thank you all for your part in that and uh, for your willingness to do that as we seek to be about what God has called us all to be about, to be part of this kingdom work that he's brought us into. And uh, so I want to take a moment uh, this morning just to uh, once again pray as we open up God's word. By the way, if you would like, uh, we do have some prayer cards out in uh, the welcome uh, at the welcome desk. So if you want to grab one, you can feel free to do that. Um, but let me pray as we dig into God's word together, shall we? Father God, what an honor it is this morning to be met with like-minded people. Lord, those who have come in here this morning with the express purpose of worshiping your name and hearing from your word. Lord, what a privilege it is to be able to do it here in freedom, with no fear of persecution, at least coming through these doors right now. And uh, Lord, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we would all be challenged that we would be encouraged that, Lord, if necessary, would you rebuke us for the sake of your kingdom and your gospel and your glory. And we'll ask these things in the precious name of your son, Christ Jesus. Amen. When Pastor Ryan got in touch with me and uh, told me that he was going to allow me to come in and be behind the pulpit, uh, that was an incredible kind of awing moment uh, for me. And uh, then when he got in touch to ask me what this morning's message would be titled, um, it's something that I've been thinking about for quite a while. And so as you've probably seen it in your bulletins uh, or through the newsletters, I've entitled this morning, you know, what's our default or what's my default, making it very, very personal. As believers and Christians, what is our default? I think it's an interesting thing to consider and to, to think about, especially as you know, we've been uh, listening to Pastor Ryan talking about where we're going as a church and the vision that he's setting out before us. That reality of wanting the lines between church and community to blur, not theologically or, uh, or anything like that, but wanting us to be part of the community and for us to be an intentional part of that community. So if that's where we're going and if that's the reality of where we want to see it move, when people look at us, what are they going to see? What are they going to see as our default, as our normal mode of operating? I think it's a challenging thing to think about. Many of us would recognize that we sing songs about how the Lord reigns in our hearts. We sing beautiful hymns this morning. And thank you to the choir and Jordan and everyone else uh, for doing that. It's just beautiful to be able to worship God together corporately. But we sing songs like that that communicate that Jesus is a part of what we do, right? Lord willing, 
a very intentional part, a, a vital part, something that we can't get away from. And if that's the case, then that should affect us, right? That should change the way we work. That should change us um, from what we were. I know Pastor Ryan, as I've been listening online while well, we've been all over the country, but he talked a couple of weeks ago in Vision Sunday, and he mentioned from uh, the writings of Paul the fact that we are new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. And so what should that new really look like? Now, the reality is I'm probably not going to tell you anything you haven't heard before this morning. There's nothing new under the sun. Amen. But Lord willing, I might be able to encourage you and remind you of something that I think we all need to be reminded of on a regular basis. If you haven't done so already, please go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter four. And as you turn there, let me give you the picture of where we find this, the the setting of where we find what we're going to look at this morning. So we know uh, that at this point in the New Testament, we've had the Gospels. Jesus has come. He's fulfilled his earthly ministry, his life, his death, the resurrection. And we're picking up in Acts, which is this fun transitionary book between the gospel times and Jesus' ministry time to the founding of the early church. And we see the disciples and the apostles moving forward from that point on intentionally establishing the church and the epistles to follow to help people understand good doctrine and what is needed. But if uh, if we look even at the, the, the book of Acts so far where we're at, right, chapter 1. The disciples, the apostles are still in Jerusalem and they're still hiding away because they're afraid. They've just seen their best friend crucified. And it hasn't quite sunk in where all this fits. Jesus had been telling them, hey, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to do this. This is where it's inevitably moving. And I'm okay with that because I'm in, I'm seeking to keep in step with where the father is telling me to go. But they didn't get it. As soon as they saw that graphic picture of Jesus on the cross, it seems like everything that he had said, just their minds went blank with. They couldn't remember it. They couldn't put it together. They couldn't piece it together. They couldn't see how it all fell into this incredible redemption story. And so in chapter 1, they're still worried. They're still scared. They're still afraid of what might happen, and they're hiding away. But then we see that our Savior meets them. If you look down at verse 8, he comes in, and he's amongst them, and he tells them that the Holy Spirit is going to come on them and empower them so that they can go and be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the age. Or to the uttermost ends of the earth, rather, right? And it's just an incredibly beautiful moment between the Savior of the world and the guys that he spent so much time with. And even though I think in some ways Jesus may have been justified in being a little bit upset at that moment or frustrated at, guys, I've spent three years with you and you're still not getting it. You're hiding. What? He deals with them incredibly graciously. He deals with them beautifully and gently, and he reminds them that the Spirit's going to come, and he's going to empower them. And then chapter 2, we see that that happens, and we see the immediate effect of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. They are bold. They get out. Peter goes up, uh, speaks this incredible gospel proclamation message, one of the most powerful sermons I think we have recorded for us in uh, New Testament, Beyond Christ. And 3,000 people are added to the number that day. 
added to the kingdom. What an incredible reality. And the gospel message that he presented pretty much boiled down to this. You crucified Christ. Repent and believe. And that's where it went. And I think that's an incredible reality because I think that's the, that's the gospel message that we need to remind ourselves of every single day. There was a very wise man who once said that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day and live in light of it. The reality is I crucified Christ. I rebelled against my God and Father. And because of that, Christ and his sacrifice was necessary. It was me who put him up there on the cross. And every day I need to be reminded that I need to repent. I need to lay my own life down for the sake of his. I need to take up my cross and follow him. And Peter preached that gospel message and 3,000 people were added to the number that day. And then in chapter 3, things start to stir up a little bit more. I love it. Peter and John are involved in a healing of a man who's been crippled from birth. And it just stirs Jerusalem up like nothing that that has been seen to that point bar probably the crucifixion. Jerusalem is just abuzz with what's going on. And it's, it's really interesting because it's at this point that the religious leaders of the day start to take notice again. They thought that they dealt with the problem and then suddenly Jesus' followers are back out and this movement just seems to be gaining ground really fast. And so they start to consider, okay, how are we going to deal with this? And in chapter 4, we see that they call Peter and John in before them in the Sanhedrin and they start to communicate basically the reality that they do not want them doing this anymore. They want them to be quiet, go home, leave this whole Jesus thing alone And just go back to doing whatever it was that you were doing before that. And if you look at verse 8 in chapter 4, we see that they're called in and Peter responds. And he basically says, look, this, this crippled guy was healed in the name of Jesus Christ, whom he crucified. And salvation is found in no one else. And he's challenging them right there. I mean, that's incredible to me that... As we're told in scripture, these unlearned men, these uneducated men had the boldness, I believe, through the empowerment of the spirit to stand before the religious leaders of the day, the big wigs of that time, and to challenge them that it's because of this name of Jesus Christ that this man has been healed and you crucified him and you need to repent. You need to find salvation in him. You you don't need to be fighting us. And the guys don't know what to do with that. So they go away and they deliberate and then they come back in verse 18. And that's where I want to pick up with you uh, right now. But look at what it says. It says, then they called them in and again commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. So basically be quiet. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. What an incredible statement to put them back on their heels. But look at verse 20. This is where I want to hang out today. For we cannot help speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. We cannot help speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. What an amazing reality 
of the gospel having an effect on people's lives. Of the empowerment of the spirit to the point where they just could not hold it in. Basically, they're being threatened. They're being told, be quiet or else. And they're kind of going, or else what? There's nothing that you can throw at us that is going to make us be quiet. Because we cannot help speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. And I love that reality. Now, obviously, this is Peter and John speaking when they say we cannot help speaking. But I believe it, ha- it should have an overflow application to all of us today. I think this should be what our default looks like. That we shouldn't be able to keep quiet about what we've seen our Savior do and what we've heard from him. That that should be us as well in line with them. That this reality, this gospel reality needs to take root in our hearts. And I'm preaching as much to myself as I am to anyone else. This needs to take root in my heart so that I cannot be quiet about it. Because they say we cannot help. And I love that, right? Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, 16 said it this way. Yet when I preach the gospel, I cannot boast, for I am compelled to preach. Woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. Basically, what he's saying is, if I were to hold this in, it would be a crime against God, and I deserve punishment at that point. There should be a compulsion, there should be a reality that this gospel message has so captured our hearts that we realize, hey, this has got to go out. It would be a crime to hold it in. And we should not be able to keep quiet about it. When we're out in the community, when those lines start to blur, I believe what they should hear is about Christ. What they've seen, what we've seen and heard, that every conversation should be peppered with it. We've been told in previous weeks that we are to be like salt and light. This is what we share When we're being salt and light. We share about the things that we have seen and heard. And let's think about some things real fast. First of all, they say that we cannot help speaking. And that's a that little word speaking for me is a real challenge. Because I know my default is more along the lines of I would rather just be quiet. I would rather, you know, live in community if I'm being perfectly honest and just kind of be there, but not say a whole lot because speaking is scary, right? But I think we need to take note of that. They spoke. And I think they did it because Jesus led the way. He set an example, right? If you look at Mark's gospel, chapter 1, verse 14 and 15, after John had been put in prison, Jesus went out into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come, he said, the kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Jesus set an example for us. He went out and he spoke. And if you look at Revelation, if you're one of those people who, kind of like me, I skip ahead in books to see how it ends. If you do that with the Gospels or with the Bible and you skip ahead to Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, you see a beautiful picture of the culmination of what God has been doing through redemptive history. And it says this, 
This is John speaking. He said, after this, I looked up and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What an incredible picture. That's where we're going. That's where God is going to take it because no one can sidetrack him. No one can dissuade him from what his goal and his plan is. But what happens between Jesus' example in Mark chapter 1 and that reality in Revelation chapter 7? It's that fun word that we sometimes cringe when we hear. It's called evangelism. We got to go and tell, right? We got to go speak about the things that we've seen and heard. Paul said it this way. How will they know unless someone preaches to them? And how will they preach unless they're sent? We've got to go tell them. And in case you're like me and you think immediately, oh, he mentioned evangelism. And your mind goes to Ephesians chapter 4 verse 10 where it says that he gave some to be prophets and teachers and apostles Some to be evangelists and some to be something else. And you're kind of going, see, some are sent to be evangelists. That's not me. I'm not an evangelist. Person once pointed out to me the next part in verse 12 of that sentence. It says, it was he speaking of Jesus who gave some to be apostles, some to be prophets, some to be evangelists, and some to be pastors and teachers to prepare God's people. For works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. You see, you, like me, I don't believe my gifting is evangelism. That's not where I'm at, but I go do it. Because I know I need to be about it. I look at what Paul said to young Tim. In, in, in one of his letters, he said, Timothy, go do the work of an evangelist. Now, we know from the writings of Paul that Timothy was a quiet, timid guy. It doesn't seem like he was the kind of Peter who stood on a box and preached to 3,000 people, challenging them that they crucified Christ. But Paul is saying, go do it. Because this is how we're going to get to that culmination that we see in Revelation. And the reality is that we've been told what our works of service are, right? Jesus gave us our marching orders in Matthew 28. Where he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, what? Stay? Sit? Be quiet? No, go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. There's the speaking part, by the way. And lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. See, the beautiful thing is he doesn't just tell us to go do it. He comes with us and he empowers us, right? And here's a a fun reality. I remember having a student at one point say, okay, Tim, you're, you're, you're passionate about this. You're saying we need to go. So how many times does the word evangelism show up in scripture? I remember thinking, oh, that's an interesting question, mostly because I knew the answer. It never appears in Scripture. Evangelism never appears in our modern translations. And the word evangelist only appears three times. And there's only one guy referred to as an evangelist. And by the way, it's not Paul. It's not Peter. It's not even Jesus. It's Philip. With the Ethiopian eunuch, that guy that most times we scan by in Acts. 
So if you were to look at that, you'd kind of think, well, maybe this evangelism thing isn't such a big deal. But then you got to realize that the word that we use, the Greek word that we get our verb to evangelize from, appears 55 times in the New Testament alone. The difference is that while we would say evangelism, it translates it differently in our modern translations. It would translate it as this, preach or preach the gospel. Or declare, or declare glad tidings. You see, there's an emphasis on speaking. And we need to be ready and willing to lay ourselves down. To put aside our own comforts. And to speak about the things that we have seen and heard. Because hey, it's not about us, right? It's about Him. It's about the things that we've seen and heard from Him. It's about His glorious gospel. It's nothing about us. We get to put the spotlight on Him. And that's exactly where it should be. It's about speaking about the things that we have seen and heard. And if we want to be like Christ, because we're called to be Christ-like, right? We need to speak. We see his example and we need to follow it through. But they spoke about things that they had seen. What had they seen? Oh, they'd seen so much. Remember, this is Peter and John. These are two of the followers who had walked with Christ for the last three, three and a half years. So just scan your mind back through some of the Gospels and think about what they'd seen. My goodness, they had seen the Messiah and they knew it. They had seen God with us, Emmanuel. They had seen the realities of God himself on earth and everything that went with that. They saw miracles. Right? They saw the lame walk. They saw the blind see again. They saw the dead raised to life. They had seen so much. But beyond that, I think probably what made a greater impact in some ways was they had seen lives radically changed. Even if you look at John's gospel, because he's in the room right now, so I'm going, and I like John. So if you were to look at John's gospel, look at some of the people that he records and the transformation that we see happen. Think of John chapter 3, Nicodemus. A teacher of Israel is how Jesus calls him. And we see in John chapter 3 that he's not getting it. He's not getting this whole thing that Jesus talks about. You must be born again. He's kind of going, how do I climb into my mother's womb again? That doesn't make sense, Jesus. And Jesus is kind of saying, if you're not getting this, then I can't take you further. But we see at the end of the Gospels that Nicodemus is part of the kingdom. We see that something had changed. A life had been radically transformed and he was in the kingdom. Incredible picture of what happens when Christ is near when the Messiah is there. How about John chapter four? I believe one of the most beautiful accounts of Jesus dealing with anyone, the woman at the well, how he so graciously deals with her, a woman who has dealt with adultery and sin for many years. And he is gracious and he is just gentle in the way that He presents himself and he helps draw her to the truth to the point where I love this. She comes down to a well to get some water. She meets Jesus and a little while later, she's going back into the town that she came from telling everyone, hey, come see the guy who told me everything I'd ever done. 
I, that's, a, that's an incredible challenge to me that she goes from, I just want water, to I met Jesus, to an immediate evangelist. Come meet him. Because this is the guy who told me everything I'd ever done, and you need to meet him too. She was speaking about the things that she had seen and heard. How about even among the disciples, someone like a Matthew, who was a tax collector, we know. Which means that to the Jews, well, he was a traitor because he was collecting taxes for Rome and yet his life had been changed. How about a Paul, formerly Saul? And we see that because of an encounter with Jesus on a road one day in Acts chapter 9, his life was radically changed. They had seen so much. But remember, they had seen even more than that. They had seen the crucifixion. They had seen the spotless Lamb of God crushed by the Father so that we wouldn't have to be. I love how Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he said, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we could become the righteousness of God. They had seen so much. They'd seen the crucifixion. They'd seen the realities of that. But beyond that, they had seen the risen Savior. They had seen the marks in his hands and his side and his feet. They had seen this triumphant reality that God had stepped into our world and he had the the power to lay his life down and he had the power to take it back up again and they saw the reality of that. They saw the ascension. They saw him being taken back up to the Father. Where now we're told that he ever lives to intercede on yours and my behalf. They had seen so much. I love the way David Platt, the author and president of the IMB, put it once when he said this. Throughout history, from the beginning of time, men have come and men have gone. Women have come and women have gone. All of them, the noblest of them, the kindest of them, the strongest of them, the greatest of them... All of them have fallen prey to sin. All of them, every single man, every single woman, a slave to sin. All of them, generation after generation, century after century, every single man and every single woman succumbed to death. But then came another man, unlike any man or woman before. This man did not fall prey to sin. He possessed power over it. This man was not enslaved to Satan. He was enslaved to righteousness. And he would crush that ancient serpent's head. This man did not succumb to death. He triumphed over it. And I love Paul when he says in 1 Corinthians 15, Where, O death, is your sting? Where, O death, is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And they had seen it. And they couldn't stay quiet about it. They could not hold it in. What had they heard? Oh, wow, so much. (laughs) Right? Again, scan your mind back through the Gospels and you see how much they had heard. But again, like I said earlier, I love John's gospel. And one of the one of the things that I find just incredible, I hang out a lot in it, is John chapters 14, 15, 16. 
and then on into 17 because it's the reality of this is the night before Jesus is taken to be crucified. And he's well aware of it. He knows where he's going. And this is the moment where he chooses to just (laughs) kind of download everything that the disciples at that point need to hear, that they need to be reminded of. And it's just an incredible couple of chapters of teaching and just wonderful things being communicated to them at that point. I encourage you, go back through and read it today at some point and just be encouraged. But let me encourage you with some of my favorites that come out of those chapters. John chapter 14, verse 1. I love this. Jesus said, trust in God, trust also in me. How about verse 6 of 14? I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 15 of chapter 14. If you love me, you will obey what I command. How about 27? One of my favorites and something that God has used a lot in my life. Chapter tw- or verse 27 of chapter 14. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. Wow, what an incredible thing to hear when he knows that he's going to be taken from them in just a few minutes, maybe hours. But hey, I'm going to give you peace. Don't worry. How about in chapter 15? Wow, so much. I love verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, then you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 9 of chapter 15. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Now remain in my love. Skip down to 16. I love verse 33. (laughs) Literally, right before he starts praying to the Father, he says this. I have told you all these things. And you've got to go back and read what all those things are because they're just awesome. But he says, I've told you all these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I've overcome the world. They had heard so much. And they knew something that we need to remind ourselves of, I believe, regularly because i think it's too easy for us to forget they knew that what they had heard was life changing and i think peter summed it up best when in john 6 68 he said something he made a declaration and it came at a point in jesus ministry when jesus was saying some pretty controversial things and many of the wider following that he had decided to start leaving And so he turned to his 12 and he said, how about you? Are you going to go too? And Peter, in one of those incredible accounts, because most of the time I love Peter, it gives me hope. He put his foot in his mouth a lot, but he came out with this gem. Simon Peter answered him in verse 68 of John 6. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. You see, they had seen and they had heard so much. And they knew this is too good to keep in. This is the path itself to eternal life. It's in him and we need to share it. We need to declare it. We need to shout it from the rooftops. And no matter what comes, no matter what they threaten us with, we're not going to be quiet. And they didn't just say this stuff. They carried it through. 
If you were to skip over the page to Acts chapter 5 and look down at verse 28, you see the fact that because they didn't be quiet, they're called in again before the Sanhedrin. And they're basically said, we told you guys to be quiet. And they kind of said, well, who should we obey, God or you? And later on, down in verse 40, it says this. I just, this stuns me. So, verse 40b, it says, the, they call the apostles in after they'd had the, a long discourse, the Sanhedrin discussing what they need to do with them. They call the apostles in and had them flogged. Now, the word that's used there is literally flay. So, like, if you ever fillet a piece of meat or anything like that, that's what happened. Like, Jesus was whipped with a cat of nine tails designed to tear flesh. This was not far off that. They were flogged. And then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. Look at verse 41, if you're there with me. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. They left rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for his name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. They never stopped. They had just been flogged. They had just been literally cut to pieces. You could probably look at their backs and see their spine, and yet they're walking out going, Amen! Praise Jesus! They're rejoicing because they knew, hey, this is worth it. And they just couldn't hold it in. It was too good to keep to themselves. Now, I'm not suggesting we go out into West County and we start looking for beatings and floggings. Okay, that's not where I'm at. Please don't misunderstand that. But I am saying, I believe this good news is so good that even if it cost us that, we preach it. And we declare it from the rooftops because this is about him. It's not about us. And I think this should be our default. This should be what we look like in our communities day to day. People who just, it's like you get into a conversation and it's almost like someone should be expecting you to say something about your Savior. Because they've interacted with you before and they know you can't hold it in. That's what it should look like. I think this is what a default biblical Christianity should be modeled after. And we should take heed of that. Each one of us, myself, more so than any of you. We need to proclaim the glory of God put on display in Christ. His life, his death, his burial, his resurrection. So that others can come to an understanding of that glorious truth. They need to know that while none of us ever deserved it. Because we had fallen short of that standard right christ likeness that's the standard we fall short of god sent his one and only son to live the life that we couldn't live to die the death that we deserve to die so that we could become christ-like so that we could become his children his heirs his beloved his holy priesthood his body his army his church the bride of christ and his righteousness What an incredible thing we have to share with people out there who don't yet know. 
And if you're here this morning and you don't know the reality of this, can I invite you to join with us? Because this is a type of default. This is a normal that is unlike anything else. This is a normal that God steps into and meets us in. This is a default that is just amazing. And remember that as we go to share this glorious news, he goes with us. And he empowers us. Let me remind you of something I said earlier. Acts chapter 1 verse 8. You will receive holy, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And if you've repented and believed, that's a reality this morning. The Holy Spirit is in you if you've repented and believed, which means you have power and you are to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost ends of the earth. Where's your Jerusalem? Where's your Samaria? Where's your Judea? Are we intentional in these things? Because we have been called to live a light or to live a life that works in light of this glorious gospel of Christ. For all to see right where we are. So this morning, can I encourage us all to pray that God would so stir our hearts this morning. That this would be our default moving forward as a body of Christ serving our Lord. Whether it's here in West County, whether it's across the ocean in Ireland, whether it's anywhere around the world. Let's pray that this would be our default. Would you bow with me as we close? Father God, what an incredible thing it is to realize what you have done for us through your son and what you have called us into as a result of that. Lord, you didn't just save us to be saved. You saved us to be disciples and to be disciple making disciples. To go and tell people what you've done. Father, I pray that we would do that. Lord, that you would inspire you would stir our hearts again this morning to be about that reality i pray lord that we would lay our lives down as a fragrant offering pleasing to you every single day for the sake of this incredible commission this incredible challenge this default that you're calling us to and lord i pray that even now as we give offerings to you Lord, that we would give joyfully, that we would give just, Lord, because it's you. And what would we hold back? Father God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for the spirit which dwells in us. Lord, would we live as you've intended every single day for your glory, your honor, your praise, and your kingdom. We ask these things. Amen.